we will continue our study of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Uh, I know I will do one of the churches. My intent is to do two of the churches uh, today. So we'll be looking first at the church in Thyatira, which is the end of chapter 2 of Revelation, and then we will begin looking at, or we will look at, the church in Sardis. Uh, Just a couple sentences to take you back to where we are uh, by way of review. Seven churches are addressed in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. They were seven churches that existed in John's day. Uh, They um, probably symbolize a letter to all the churches. Uh, Obviously, we know that because we're here in Hopewell reading these letters that were sent to these churches. They were not just private letters to those churches. In the seven letters, we we do see just about every every spiritual issue that uh, Christian communities can face. So I know that what John wants of us at this point is to be able to look at these seven churches and to allow these seven churches to encourage us to participate uh, with our own moral inventory. What's going on here uh, in the communities that first received the book of Revelation is they, they as Christian communities in a Greco-Roman world of the first century, at the end of the first century, they um, were being pressured to accommodate, to compromise, to uh, mix a little Christianity with a little of the religions of the world around them, and thus to get along better in the ancient world. They were receiving these pressures to more completely assimilate in the life of the uh, latter first century. Um, They were receiving the pressure, and we already can sense in the book of Revelation in these seven letters that... um, as has been true with that, without, within 2,000 years of Christian history, whenever the Christian community refuses to assimilate to the extent, to accommodate to the extent that the uh, society around them wants them to, uh, they, they, the society around them will ratchet up the pressure. And we saw last week how in Pergamum, uh, the first martyr of this era, the first martyr that John references, um, Antipas, uh, lost his life for the sake of uh, his faith in Jesus Christ. So what is happening is um, they're, they're, they're being pressured to compromise, to tolerate more than they should be tolerating, to um, receive more and participate more in the Greco-Roman society around them than, than they should. And um, these letters are written to these seven churches, and all seven of the churches are different, are written to these seven churches to encourage them to hold fast, to stay true to Christ, or to use the language of Revelation, to conquer, to make sure that they, that they prevail and they don't allow the culture around them to prevail. So, let's start with Thyatira. Let me say just a few words about Thyatira, and uh, hopefully you can connect some of the dots Uh, in your own mind uh, between the age of um, Thyatira at the end of the first century in our culture. Thyatira was a city that we really don't know a lot about of all the seven cities mentioned here in these two chapters of Revelation. We know the least about Thyatira. 
um, was not well known like, like a Pergamum or an Ephesus. Uh, we know some about Thyatira from the book of Acts, chapter 16. We know that Lydia, uh, someone that Paul encountered in Philippi, was originally from this city, and she was a seller of purple. Maybe that story's coming back to you from Acts chapter 16. She was a businesswoman that Paul uh, encountered in Philippi. She was from Thyatira, and that fits because we do know that Thyatira was a, um, a major commercial center. And let me tell you what we need to understand to understand what's going to be written to Thyatira. In the first century world, they didn't have trade unions, but they had trade guilds in the first century world. Uh, that function somewhat like trade unions in, in, in modern era. Uh, these trade guilds would be like groups of iron workers or groups of cloth dyers or groups of whatever, different trades, who would kind of come together in, in order to help um, benefit the people working in that industry, in order to benefit uh, the workers and the, and the growth of that industry. The problem was this. These trade guilds in the ancient world frequently would assemble um, in pagan temples. They frequently would mix their assembling with some degree of acknowledgement of the pagan deities. Uh, they would eat meat that had been offered uh, to the pagan gods. So hopefully you see the issue. Let's say you were a seller of purple in Thyatira and you need to be part of that trade guild. Well, you as a Christian would have an issue meeting in a pagan temple. Uh, perhaps um, opening your guild meeting with a prayer to Apollo. You would have an issue with eating meat offered to Apollo. Um, so you see the issue there. So the Christian community in Thyatira, and this would, be, would have been happening all over the Greco-Roman world, the Christian community in Thyatira, they were paying a price, an economic price, uh, because of their faith. Because if they couldn't be part of the particular trade union, trade guild, uh, of which their trade would have put them in, they probably could not work in that particular city. So they had to make a choice between living their trade, making a living, and joining the trade guild. Um, hard choice. Sometimes today we have to make a choice between making a living um, and being faithful to Christ. Sometimes we may be called on in making a living to do something that would not be honoring to Christ. Uh, that was obvious in a place like Thyatira and any of the cities of the ancient world uh, if they had to be a part of a trade guild. So that's sort of your background as to what's going on in Thyatira. So now look at, um, look at the letter, verse 18, chapter 2. And to the messenger or the angel of the church in Thyatira, and we've talked about that quite a bit, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, this little image goes back to the initial vision of the glorified, exalted Christ in chapter 1. But you may also need to know that one of the thriving industries uh, 
in Thyatira was a metalwork industry. So it fits that the image of Jesus here is one um, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Their gods may have feet of clay. Our God does not have a feet of clay. That's the image you see of Jesus here. Then verse 19. Here's Jesus speaking to the church in Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance. Those are all wonderful things. And that your latter works exceed the first. So they're doing a lot of good things regarding their love, agape, their faith, pistis, their service, patient endurance, hupomone, that patient endurance, uh, that steadfastness that's mentioned several times in the book. They're living out a life that's exemplified by those things, and they're doing better now than they were doing with these things when they, when they first received Christ. But you know what's coming. You know there's a but coming. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you. Jesus says that you tolerate. Just kind of let that word settle in for a moment. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Um, I hope, hope you've been with me up to this point because we've talked about the Nicolaitans, the followers of Balaam, and the followers of Jezebel. They're probably all doing the same thing, and it's going to be obvious here. So we're not going to talk much about them. These are the groups within these churches. And they are within these churches. These would be false teachers in the Christian community that are um, enticing the people to, to tolerate things they shouldn't be tolerating in the Christian community. And again, we know, we've talked about Jezebel for the last two sessions. We know about the biblical history of Jezebel and all that that symbolized to the Jewish community, the early Christian community. Uh, so the problem here is they're doing wonderful things, but they have a teacher among them that's being referred to as Jezebel. She probably didn't really have the name Jezebel because no Jew would have given their daughter the name Jezebel. Uh, Jesus has given her the name Jezebel um, because Jesus has a certain opinion about this teacher. So look at what he says. He, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So she's teaching in the community and is teaching and is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the image we keep looking at. Um, she's teaching and seducing the servants to practice sexual immorality. If your translation says fornication, just X that out and put sexual immorality. The New Testament knows the difference between fornication and sexual morality. The word here is porneia. Um, there's another word for fornication. Fornication is when people, when you have um, um, sexual intercourse with someone that's not your, your spouse. Uh, that's what fornication is. The New Testament knows what that is. Adultery is when uh, you're married to someone and you go out and have sexual intercourse with someone that's not your spouse. The word here is porneia which is why it should be translated as sexual morality. It's a broader term. It, it involves more than just adultery fornication. It would include those in the Greco-ancient world, but it involves other types of unlawful, using Moses' language, unlawful kinds of, of sexual um, activity. So this prophetess is teaching and seducing. The seducing here um, is not 
literal seducing. We know because you've, you've read the book, you've read the Hebrew Bible, you've read the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when the people of Israel would go after other gods, the uh, prophet frequently would refer to the fact that they are a whoring after other gods. They would be committing adultery with the other gods. Um, they would be um, cheating on the true spouse of Israel and going after other gods. So again, this seducing here is not so much a literal seducing sexually as much as it is leading people away from the, their true spouse. Um, remember, the church in the New Testament is called the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We have a spouse. Let's not cheat on her. Uh, the same thing with Israel throughout the Hebrew Bible. They are betrothed, married to God. So when they would go after other gods, it would be spiritual adultery. So we're talking about spiritual adultery here. This teacher is helping them to go after other gods. Remember the, the literal Jezebel in 1 Kings and a little bit in 2 Kings uh, brought the worship of the pagan god Baal into the midst of the children of Israel, helped them blend a little bit of Baal worship with a little bit of the worship of the God of Israel. And as a result of that, particularly with Baal, uh, part of worshiping Baal was accepting literal sexual activity that the God of Israel wouldn't accept. So we, we get a picture of what this prophetess is doing here in Thyatira. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. God's gracious and God's patient. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Again, porneia, if your translation says fornication, X that out, is broader than just fornication. And here it's probably spiritual adultery. It does occur in many different ways. Um, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Now, get the image here. This um, immoral Jezebel is being thrown into a bed. Not the kind of bed she wants to be thrown into. She had another kind of bed she wanted to be thrown into. She's been thrown into a bed here that she didn't want to be thrown into. It's a sick bed. Uh, and those who commit adultery with her, and again, this is almost certainly spiritual adultery. Uh, those who commit spiritual adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Now, um, there are commentators out there that would talk about this sick bed that the followers, the children of Jezebel, this false teacher, are thrown into along with Jezebel. Uh, so there are some commentators out there who say it may literally be venereal disease, uh, but it's probably a spiritual disease because we're really dealing with spiritual adultery here. So they'll be thrown into this sick bed and they'll have great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Again, Jesus, so gracious and patient. He's still leaving that door cracked unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. <clears throat> Again, the children of Jezebel are not literal children, but the followers of the prophetess. Uh, verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who, I am he who searches the mind and heart. Um, to show you that you're Greek scholars, you know the word for heart here. Cardia. What's an English word we get from that? Cardiologist. Uh, now, what's interesting, though, in the biblical world, the word mind there is literally 
your kidneys. So uh, what the text literally says, Jesus says, I know your kidneys and your heart. Uh, between your kidneys and your heart, that's everything you feel, everything you think. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting in, in, the, in the modern world, we, we mention heart as like the center of emotions. Um, the ancient world mentioned kidneys as the center of emotion. Now, a little bit, they have, a, they have, they have their analogy off a little bit because uh, they didn't maybe know anatomy as well as they could, but in some ways it makes more sense. When, when you get real, 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 real emotional, you don't, you don't throw your heart up, you throw something else up. So the ancients knew that. It felt more like a gut thing to them, uh, their emotions. So they, they reference kidneys. We just say mind and heart because that's the language we use in our culture. So this Jesus says, I know, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. I know you, your inner person. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Again, he knows whether or not you have been committing spiritual adultery, whether or not it's obvious to the people around you. He knows. And I will give to you each according to your works. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, obviously there's a faithful remnant in Thyatira that hasn't been seduced by this prophetess, uh, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say I, would, I, I do not lay on you any other burden. Obviously the prophetess and her group were telling people that they had the deeper teaching. They had the more profound teaching. They, they knew more than the run-of-the-mill Christian knew about Jesus. Who knows what they were saying about Jesus or who knows what kind of deep teaching they were trying to sell to the people. So they're, they're selling this deep teaching to the people and helping these people become the elite followers of Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting here. Jesus is sort of mocking, mocking them, what they're calling deep teaching, um, Jesus calls it the deep things of Satan. You know, an image I have here, um, I started to say, I hope I don't offend you, but really I can offend you on this one. I hope you're not doing this. Uh, Scientology. You know, that's one of the weird little cultic things going around the world. It's real popular with movie stars. It's real pop popular on, on the West Coast. Uh, anyway, Scientology was founded by L. Ron Hubbard, uh, he wrote a book called Dianetics. I, I remember I tried to read that about 20 years ago. Uh, it was a bestseller. Everybody finally discovered it was a bestseller because the, the Scientology organization was buying massive copies of it to make sure it got on the right list and then made people like you buy it. Anyway, the book was Dianetics. I remember reading L. Ron Hubbard, trying to read L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics, and you know, I, I read, I didn't read all of it because I got into it, and it sounded like a bunch of muddled nonsense to me. It made absolutely no sense to me. Now, I'm sure, obviously, there are people out there who read it, and, and it made no sense to them, and, and rather than saying this is a bunch of muddled nonsense, they said, ooh, this must be deep. <laughs> and they start throwing money at the Scientologist. Um, evidently, that's somewhat what Jezebel, in quotation marks, this prophetess, was teaching some of the Christians there. You know, there's always been movements within the Christian church. We call them Gnostic, by the way, but 
you may not need to want to know, you may not, you don't need to know that term. That's for another day. But there's always been movements within the Christian church for the last 2,000 years that says there are average Christians. And then if you listen to us or read our stuff, we'll help you be the super Christians. And the church has called that Gnosticism. You know, if anybody out there is offering you secret enlightenment, if they're offering you a secret way of being better than other Christians, of knowing the real deep things of God, just be, be a little leery of that. Um, Paul says that what Jesus did, he did it in front of the whole wide world. and Everybody can see it, and everybody can know the gospel, and everybody can read this book. Everybody can receive the things of Christ. If anybody ever tells you you're a level one Christian, but for... But by my book, I help you be a level two. I'll help you get into the inner, inner fold. Just be a little, little leery of that. Um, evidently, this group was doing that. They, they were pushing the secret teachings. Uh, uh, you know, every now and again, National Enquirer finds some more secret teachings of Jesus. And what's really amazing is they pull out a book or a document that we've known for 1,800 years, like the Gospel of Judas, it was not hidden to anybody but um, National Enquirer and you folks. The rest of us have known about it for 1,800 years. But, you know, they always refine these secret things, read it, and somehow that's going to revolutionize your life. Or somehow that's going to just torpedo the traditional Christian faith. Uh, they keep finding that stuff, and they've not found anything yet. Uh, people are sure that they can find something in the libraries of the Vatican that is being hidden by the church. Because if you find it, it's going to just torpedo the Christian faith. People have been saying they've had that kind of stuff for 2,000 years. Um, if people are trying to sell you that kind of stuff, uh, you're smarter than that. So evidently this prophetess here, Jezebel, is selling some secret teaching to the church in Thyatira. But, uh, you know, fortunately there's some people in Thyatira that's refusing to buy her, buy her stuff. Uh, so verse 25, he, he's commending the people who, who refuse to listen to this false prophetess. So look at verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. That's almost the whole point of the book of Revelation. Hold fast. Don't let society pull you away from what you know to be true. Verse 26, the one who conquers. Okay, hold fast and conquer. You know, if you don't realize that the spiritual life involves spiritual warfare, you're probably in battle, but you don't even know it. You see, you're much wiser if you're in battle to know you're in battle. Um, that's why the, the document here, like much of the New Testament, says you've got to contend. You've got to pay attention. You've got to put on the full armor of God. You've got to hold fast so that you can conquer. So, and remember, the, each of these letters ends with promise. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And here, the... the um, Glorified Christ begins uh, alluding to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, this may be your homework. Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic psalms that we find in the book of Psalms. Um, psalm 2 talks about God and the anointed one, God and the Son. Uh, psalm 2 talks about how God will give the Son uh, the nations for his inheritance. So if you read Psalm 2, you'll know why we Christians have gotten excited for the last couple thousand years because we see uh, predictions of Christ in Psalm 2. Here Jesus begins alluding to what we call Psalm 2 when he says, I will give authority over the nations to the one who conquers. I will give authority over the nations. 
and he will rule. The word there is actually shepherd. He will shepherd or he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Again, one of the promises from Paul and book of Revelation and elsewhere is those of us that will rule, those of us who suffer with Christ, one day will reign with Christ. That's a quotation from Paul. So uh, one of the things that's part of the reward of the faithful is we'll participate in the eternal kingdom, the eternal rule or reign of Christ. And that's what he's promising here. Hold true, and you'll get to participate in this. Verse 28, and this wraps up letter to Thyatira. And this is a beautiful phrase. And I will give him the morning star. What star is the morning star? I think I heard it. Venus is the morning star. You may have a study note in your study Bible, Venus. That's the morning star because that's the star that uh, pops up. And the ancients knew this. That's the star that pops up that tells you that the morning is about to dawn. Uh, So that's the morning star, Venus. So here you're being told if you contend and hold fast and stay true to Christ and, and conquer, Jesus will give you the morning star. Now, um, obviously the morning star is used frequently in the Bible, in ancient literature, uh, to symbolize the dawn of the new day. Because that's what Venus does. It tells us the new day is dawning. So if you hold true to Christ, you'll participate in the dawning of the new day. You'll, hold, you'll be able to participate in the new day. Um, but let me tell you what I think is even a little bit more exciting about this. If you... Um, and you probably have a study note that sends you to this. You may have a cross-reference that sends you to this. But in, and you don't have to turn to this point now. But if you look at Revelation 22:16, uh, we'll get to chapter 22 eventually. That's the end of the book. When you look at chapter 22, verse 16, you will hear Jesus saying, I am the morning star. So here when you hear Jesus saying, you stay true to me, I will give you the morning star. Um, the, the author of Revelation assumes you've read the whole book at this point. So what Jesus is saying is, you stay true to me, I will give me to you. Uh, in other words, there'll be an intimacy, there'll be a union. Uh, you will have the gift of Christ in your life. You will receive the fullness of Christ in your life. So he's promising himself as a gift. <clears throat> To those who hold true. So I think that's beautiful. And I will give him the morning star. And then there, and then next you hear the quotation from the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus said there, and he says again, who has an ear, let him hear or let him listen what the Spirit says to the churches. In the Hebrew language, by the way, this is written in Greek, but in the Hebrew language, to hear and to obey are, um, are based on the same root. So when the Bible says hear, the Bible's saying obey. Um, you know that. When your mama said to you, are you listening to me? She really meant, are you obeying me, is what she meant. So that's still even true in our language, that there's a close connection between hearing, listening, and obeying. So Jesus is not just um, saying, you know, overhear what he's saying. He who has near, let him obey what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear the Word of God, if you hear the Scripture, and this is referenced several times in Scripture, if you hear the Word of God and refuse to do it, 
you're in a more dangerous spot than those who have not heard. So, you're already here, you can't get out of it, so there you go. Uh, once you hear it, you cannot unhear it. So once you hear it, you have more responsibility to do it. Okay, now's the church in Sardis. Um, there is a Sardis Road in Charlotte, and there are churches on Sardis Road in Charlotte who have named themselves after the road. I cannot believe they haven't changed their name. I, if I showed up and the bishop sent me, we don't have one, but the bishop sent me to serve Sardis United Methodist Church, first thing I would do would say, we got to change this name. I don't care what the name of that road is out there. we got to change the name Sardis because I've read the book. And you're not going to name my church Sardis. I don't care what road we set on. Um, maybe that tells you something about biblical biblical illiteracy in our culture. Please, if you got relatives in Sardis Church, don't tell them I just said that. But if they're not upset about being named Sardis Presbyterian Church, tell them to call me and I'll help them get upset about being named Sardis. I'll just give them this reference. Look at Sardis in the New Testament. Okay, here's the church at Sardis. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you before I read it. The church at Sardis is a dead church. I'm not going to name my church Sardis. <laughs> I don't care what road I'm on, I'm not going to name it Sardis. Uh, is it dead? It is, is that another meaning? Spiritually dead. Oh, okay. No, they're, they're busy. That's why I love the letter to the church in Sardis. Because it's a letter that Christ writes to a very, very, very busy church. I'm sure there are people, and people say this to me in every church I've pastored, and I'm always grateful but also a little nervous. I've had people say to me, you know, every time I drive by your church, there's cars in the parking lot. You're a very busy church. Well, you know, that's great if my mind didn't go to the church at Sardis. Because <laughs> that's exactly what he said about the church at Sardis. Very busy church. But they're dead. And that's why this is a great warning to a church. That you can be busy. I tell the staff here periodically. You know, if the Holy Spirit left next week, Weston Memorial United Methodist Church, what would be different? It's a little scary if nothing would be different. If the calendar continued on. Uh, Christianity is full of busy churches. That doesn't mean they're alive, spiritually speaking. Look at the church in Sardis. Uh, and to the, some people call the church at Sardis, you know, a... Um, uh, a coffin with a cross on top of it. I mean, it looks like a church. It smells like a church. It quacks like a church. But they're spiritually dead. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, that goes back to the initial vision, chapter 1. Seven spirits of God, the perfect spirit, the sevenfold spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, the seven stars, that's the, the seven angels that the, the glorified Christ is holding in his hands. So here's the letter. I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive and busy and active but you are dead. Just let that sink in for a little bit. I mean, churches need to evaluate their calendars. Churches need to evaluate their busyness. 
Um, just having frenetic activity is not what Jesus pre puts a premium on. You know, are people coming to know Christ? Are people growing in their faith? We know what makes for a spiritually alive church. Uh, just, uh, you know, full calendar is not necessarily, nothing opposed to a full calendar, but, uh, you know, some of the stuff that church is doing may just be busy work. I know your works, you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And particularly in the Greek, that you are dead is two kind of harsh words. It's like it comes to a screeching halt, but you are dead. You almost would expect, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, and I'm so, part of your, I'm so glad you're part of our denomination. You almost expect to say something like that. But it says, but you are dead. Wake up. So here's a church in need of spiritual awakening. A lot of those in the West, too. Wake up and strengthen what remains. I mean, that's great. Something remains in this church. So that, that, that should also give us a cause to think. You know, you can be dead, but there's still maybe something, something there that can wake up. You're not completely dead, but he's still saying you're dead. There's still maybe something. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So you can be a dead church and not completely dead, or maybe something that's about to die, but maybe there's something there that the Spirit can blow on to and cause something to come back alive. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die. For I have not found your works complete. If you want to um, use the word mature there, that might be better. I've not found your works mature, spiritually mature in the sight of my God. Verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard. You know, we all know better. We all know what makes for a vital congregation. I remember one day, just a little a side story, one of the best meetings I've ever participated in with um, denominational hierarchy was when I was, I was in a cabinet meeting with Bishop Goodpastor. We were actually on retreat and doing some mission work at Hinton Rural Life Center. Some of you have been to Hinton Rural Life Center. And we worked all day, and in the evenings we met. Um, and we were meeting really just kind of do some more of our business for the 1,100 churches of the West North Carolina Conference. And we were just going on about our business. And we, you know, we were convinced that uh, the, we know what the mission statement is of the Methodist churches. And this is really true of any church. We know what our mission statement is, to make disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We know that's our mission statement, to make disciples who then go out and change the world. We know that's the mission statement. And we've been talking about that mission statement really ad nauseum for a long time, many days, many months on cabinet. Well, I'll never forget it was Stephanie Hand in the room. She's one of our great African-American church leaders. It was Stephanie Hand in the room who finally said to us, interrupted our wonderful discussion about, you know, how we make disciples, how we help churches make disciples. And Stephanie Hand said, do we even know what a disciple looks like? <coughs> that almost brought revival to the bishop in the cabinet, which is an amazing thing. That pushed us to a place that pushed us to prayer. Yeah, because we said, yeah, we're, we're not, we got to go back even further than our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to make sure we know what a disciple is. You know, to make sure what a disciple looks like. 
You know, disciple, the word literally means a learner. Someone, and a better word for disciple than learner is apprentice. A disciple of Jesus Christ is an apprentice of Jesus Christ. You know what an apprentice does, right? That's why you can just learn. You can just kind of sit and learn and absorb some information. An apprentice is someone who goes to work for a shoemaker to to do what? To make shoes. So a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who does what Jesus Christ did and is doing. That's a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that because our, our mission statement for all Methodist churches and all churches is we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ to go out and change the world. You know, sometimes churches can be really busy doing a whole lot of really good things that may have nothing to do with that. You know, when I was a district superintendent, I used to roam the connection and I would say to churches, you know, if what you're, because of this superintendent, I could say, hard things, go get in my car and drive home, which is always nice. I would say to churches, I'd say, you know, if what you're doing doesn't have anything to do with John 3, 16, stop it. At least make it have something to do with John 3, 16, or if not, stop it. You know, because we do an awful lot in the life of the church. We're the busiest we've ever been in the West in Christendom, and we're the weakest we've ever been in the West in Christendom. Think on that a little bit. Ex-district superintendents coming out here a little bit. Who I had 167 churches and 181 clergy that I was supposed to have oversight over. We're the busiest here in the West, Europe and the United States. We're, our churches are the busiest they've ever been. We're the weakest we've ever been. We need to spend some time thinking and praying about that. We need to, uh, um, you know, a lot of us might ought to put the word Sardis out in front of our churches. Uh, because, you know, we're busy and active, have the reputation of being alive, but we're not. Anyway, let me get away from preaching and go back and let John do the preaching. Go back to, um, yeah, if you wake up, well, verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard. You know better, he says to him, keep it and repent. There's that word repent. Jesus is so gracious. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Who said that? Jesus. Jesus says, I'll come like a thief in the night. And by the way, the city of Sardis, great city, by the way, large Jewish population, and there didn't seem to be a problem between the Jews and the Christians in Sardis, had the biggest synagogue for the Jewish community in antiquity. There's a synagogue. I've been to the ruins of the synagogue. Uh, there's a synagogue there that was the size of, because the ruins are still there, the size of a football field. Um, great city that city had fallen twice in its history because the enemy snuck up on it and their watchmen were asleep that's probably why Jesus is saying um, you know if you will not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you because that literally happened twice in the history of Sardis verse 4 yet you still have a few names a few names uh, in Sardis, a few people in Sardis, people who have not sold their garment, you know, with the filth of this world, but have not sold their garment, and they will walk. In the Hebrew, walking is not just strolling. Walk, walking is how you live. 
You know, when you walk with Christ, it doesn't mean you take a stroll with Christ. It's how you live with Christ. So he says, there, there are some who have not sold their garments with the filth of this world, and they will walk with me in white. That's on your list of symbols. White symbolizes victory the, uh, or clean, cleanliness and victory. Uh, they'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, there's that word again, conquers, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. First person in the Bible talking about the book of life was Moses. It occurs in the Hebrew Bible, and then it occurs five times in the in the book of Revelation. The book of life. That's sort of the register cities had registers of who were citizens. God's book of life are those people who are among the redeemed, those people who belong to God through Christ. But he uh, can blot you out. He can blot you out. I didn't write it. <laughs> In other words, he can be there and then it's not there. He can be there and then it's not there. I didn't write it. Now, for those of you that are theological nerds in the room, you just learned that I am Arminian and not Calvinist. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you think he can't blot you out. Those of us from the Arminian wing of the church, we say, I hope he can't, but don't you ever bank on it. God can pretty much do. In other words, those of us that are not, those of us in the Armenian camp do not believe in once saved, always saved. I hope that camp is right, but I'm not going to bank on that. You stay in the faith. You stay close to Christ. You receive the grace. You live in grace and die in grace. You live in the faith and die in the faith. Yeah, there's too much evidence I mean, if you look at this, at least there's evidence he may blot you out. He can blot you out of the book of life. Uh, I know there's parts of the Christian community that say, no, he can't. I didn't write it. Me and John Wesley would say, we didn't write it. Just live your life as if he can and don't, don't bank on the fact that he's not going to. So you can, you can be blotted out. I will never, uh, yeah, these people that are staying true will never blot his name out of the book of life. So obviously some people will get blotted out. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit are saying to the churches. Obey what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I really wish, um, I think every, I've, I've preached a series on these seven churches and every church I've pastored. I, I wish every pastor would preach on the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, maybe we need to do it about once every two years or something. Um, because these seven churches are given to us to help us reflect. To help us say, okay, among these seven churches, where are we at? What would Jesus' letter sound like? that Jesus' letter, the glorified Christ, what was his letter sound like written to our congregation? And we have lots of congregations represented in this room. What would Jesus' letter sound like written to our congregation? And then we have influence, by the way, in all of our congregations. If, if you are part of a Sardis church, don't just say, well, it's, it's all because of those other sorry people in my congregation. You're part of it too. We have responsibility for the body of Christ. You know, Paul said frequently we belong to each other. When part, one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So, you know, we, can't, we, can't, we, cannot, we cannot be joyfully ignorant of living in a Sardis church. We have to take responsibility 
for our churches to make sure that um, we don't just have the reputation for being alive uh, at that point.